We're doing a four-part series, and this is the second of the four parts. And if you weren't here last week, don't worry, because <laughs> each hopefully will stand on its own. But to give you the overview, the Buddha taught hand-in-hand hand with mindfulness, or vipassana, uh, meditations of the heart, actually of the heart-mind, because the words are really one and the same in Asian scripts. Uh, they're called the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes, these meditations. And they include practices of loving-kindness, of compassion, of joy and equanimity. So tonight is the night that we'll be, I'll be speaking some on compassion and we'll be doing exercises or guided reflections just to bring it alive in a way that I hope will be relevant for you. Now, last week with the um, talk on loving kindness, the grounds of loving kindness practice is to learn to pay attention. And this is true for every one of the Brahma Viharas and every meditation anywhere. It all starts with this capacity to be here and pay attention. When we see what's true, when we pay attention and see what's true, part of what we see is this innate goodness of each other and our own inner being, and we see beauty. And when we see that, there's a natural arising of loving-kindness. So the causes or conditions which bring on loving-kindness is the seeing of goodness. In a similar way, when we look and truly look, we can also see suffering. It's true that our basic nature is awakening, that our hearts are loving, and it's true that we're vulnerable. We each are in different ways insecure and all beings suffer some. Compassion is what arises when we see the truth of suffering. And in every wisdom tradition I know, compassion is bowed to, it's honored as the, the gateway. When we see suffering, compassion arises. Kuan Yin is the bodhisattva of compassion, the traditional embodiment. And it's quite beautiful. She's described as listening to the cries of the world and and having this natural response of kindness, of being touched. The prayer of the bodhisattva, of the awakening being, which is all of us, and this is something we might or might not have as a conscious prayer, but somewhere deep down, my sense is it's in us all, is that whatever happens in this life in some way may serve to wake up our natural compassionate heart. That whatever happens in some way may be of benefit, may bring us towards freedom. So it's a really interesting inquiry to start looking at how is it that suffering wakes us up? I mean, why is it valued? Why is it really honored as a pathway? And it seems that the first piece to pay attention to is that it's in our vulnerability that we discover our connectedness. Most of you have had that experience of being with another person or in a small group and when it gets to a level of realness where there's there's kind of the disclosures that really let each other in on fear and on grief and in on, on where we don't feel so good about ourselves. There's this very natural connection that comes out of that, out of that shared kind of vulnerability. A number of um, my friends and fellow teachers on their trips to India for, for several years would visit a teacher called Deepama, who uh, is now dead, a little Indian woman who was very old even you know, during those five years, she was in her 80s, that people were visiting her. And they would keep going to her because she had this incredible 
power of making you feel absolutely held. Anyone that was in her presence felt like they were special and beloved from the very first time they'd meet her. And it was said that she had this profound understanding that each of us, each of us are vulnerable to the pain of life. And she certainly was. I mean, she went through all sorts of miseries, but went through them with the integrity of mindfulness. So she could look at anyone and see Buddha nature and also see the the realness of suffering and have a natural tenderness. So you could be with her and feel seen, and we need to feel seen and feel loved. There's a saying that I like, be kind, everyone you see is struggling hard. What happens sometimes is I'll talk about how everybody's vulnerable and insecure and struggling and people will say, well, I know that's true in me, but I see all sorts of people that seem like they're doing just fine. (laughs) And, And it's true. And there's all sorts of ways the Buddha described the word dukkha, our suffering, our discontent in a lot of different ways and it doesn't always take the uh, shape of anguish. Sometimes it takes the shape of numbness or distraction or preoccupation or busyness. There's lots of ways. Ways that we avoid suffering that create more suffering. One of the fascinations that's a good one that we all have is this interest in... um, with people that are famous and really seeing the human that's there. I mean, biographies sell well. And of course there was a fascination with this president's uncovering. And there's some desire in us to really see what's going on behind the presentation. Why? Realness helps. It helps to see realness in ourselves and in each other. It soothes our anxiety about being the only really sick one, you know. So one President's Day, there was this article that said, okay, behind the lines, here's some tidbits about, in this case, famous uh, presidents and first ladies. I'll just read you a few. Andrew Johnson was the only president ever, who was the only president ever to be impeached, apparently had a fondness for rodents. Discovering mice in the White House basement, Johnson every night would lovingly provide them with a basket and feed them water and flour. <laughs> These are just tidbits. Ulysses Grant acknowledged an addiction to cocaine. He had started by taking the drug as a treatment for cancer of the throat and then became fully addicted. Julia Tyler. She received guests on a throne chair surrounded by 12 vestal virgins in white. (laughs) I mean, these are just little quirks that you should know about. (laughs) She introduced polka to Washington and titled herself Presidentress. Presidentress. Mary Lincoln was the only first lady to attempt suicide. She overspent a redecorating budget, diverted allocated funds from wounded soldiers to freed slaves, bought tens of thousands of dollars worth of clothing on credit, and considered having the manure on the White House lawn sold to pay the differences. (laughs) Grace Coolidge refused to give speeches or allow her voice to be recorded. When pressed by reporters to speak at a luncheon, she rose and delivered her remarks in sign language. Warren Harding was known to say, I'm not fit for this office and never should have been here. Self-esteem problems. And then Woodrow Wilson. uh, The Post once inadvertently humiliated Wilson. Uh, They reported on an evening he had at the theater with his fiancée, Edith Galt, and a reporter wrote that instead of watching the performance, the president spent most of his time entertaining Mrs. Galt. But alas, the word entertaining came out as entering in the paper's early editions. (laughs) So (laughs) this was scandalous back then. (laughs) And I'll refrain from making a contemporary comment, but... There's a fascination with the particulars, the humanness of well-known people. There's a fascination about going to horror movies because there's something about the realness 
the intensity of fear. So it's a safe place to feel realness. So one piece is that there's a sense of connection when we find out about or share with each other in some way are open about vulnerability. The other piece is that when we connect with what's real, it wakes up our heart. As long as we're fighting what's here, our hearts stay shut. A friend of mine who's a therapist in Charlottesville was living quite an idyllic life. He he had this beautiful spread down there and uh, two beautiful children, happy marriage. And then it turned out that his oldest son uh, had diabetes. You know, as a child, he had diabetes, which is quite serious, as some of you know. He had to have a shot every day. And he was basically, and still is, because this isn't, I mean, the story hasn't ended, living under the shadow of a shorter life. Those of you that know about childhood diabetes know this. And my friend described his own process of of feeling the vulnerability of this. And at first, it seemed like such a curse. I mean, he would have traded anything in his life for having his son not living under this. But gradually, what it became, this this shared vulnerability in his family, is this incredible pathway to cherishing, day by day, the life of his family and time with his children. It's one of the parents I know that least forgot about being present with his children. Our suffering and our vulnerability can be the wake-up, can be the wake-up for our hearts. We don't have to look far. You know, pain and loss is universal. Every one of us has a body that's going to die, probably will get sick before it dies, and a heart and mind that will lose a lot of beings that are precious to us. So we don't have to look far. And every family has its skeletons in the closet. I always get re-amazed at how, you know, you can go into thinking how your own particular set of circumstances is difficult, and then as soon as you really get led into the story of another family, every family, every family has something has some mental illness or some addiction or some violence or some adulterous type secret. Everyone has trouble, you know, some bigger than others. Henny Youngman writes, my, ta- my dad was the town drunk. Usually that's not so bad, but New York City? So one of the wake-ups is to begin to recognize that we all share in this, that we all share in this kind of basic insecurity about how it all is, and inability to control it. It just happens, this life. And the teachings of the Buddha and the practice of compassion come from our ability to face this, to face the suffering, to face the insecurity, to really be with compassion, to be with what arises with an open heart, with honesty. So tonight, I'd like to explore a little further this prayer of the Bodhisattva, that whatever arises, the deaths, the losses, the sicknesses, all the pains of this heart and body and mind, how the prayer is May this, too, serve to awaken. Imagine if you could move through your life and when something was difficult, your spontaneous response was, ah, may this wake up my heart. May this allow me to connect with deeper wisdom. So we start with a reflection on this, if you will. You don't have to sit up real straight if you don't want to, but just to close your eyes and go within a bit. And to choose, if you will, something that's current in your life that feels difficult. It might be an interpersonal difficulty or something within yourself that's been challenging. 
and take a moment to honestly connect with what this is the story around it how difficult it has felt this is just an honest connecting with what's true and include in your reflection how have you been relating to this have you been paying attention have you been judging or wishing it away trying to control yourself or another person blaming accepting, opening how have you responded to the difficult circumstances thus far Honestly noticing your own responses and then trying on this aspiration. May these circumstances too serve to awaken this heart, serve to awaken wisdom and compassion. Sensing, as they say, the gold and the straw how this might serve your spiritual path. coming back, opening your eyes and we will return to this as we go on through the evening but just keeping in mind the sense of possibility of encountering what's difficult with this kind of aspiration ah, may this wake me up may this serve now for most of us when we're not really in the thick of it it seems like a really good idea Isn't that true? To try to learn from what's going on, why not, you know? And when we're in the thick of it, we're not in this kind of open looking at a situation. We're not the sky looking at the clouds or the ocean looking at the waves. Rather, we're inside the cloud, inside the wave. And it doesn't even barely occur to us usually we're resentful that it exists we're offended by life not cooperating with us usually and we're in a reactive place whenever I'm going to um, give a talk I usually kind of use the exercises you know double time with myself on my way just to kind of uh, get into the feel of it and this one was really challenging because I'm going through a an era right now that's uh, with my son that's very adversarial where he's not performing the way I want him to in school and I'm finding myself really reactive and angry so what I've been doing through the week is saying okay every time this anger comes up I'm going to in some way as soon as I can have that prayer may this serve to awaken and try to you know stop for a moment and just sense how I can really be with what's under the anger and not act out so much And it's amazing because there are times that I can pause and forgive the anger for existing because it's not about forgiving him yet. It's just making peace with the emotion that's there and come to a place where I'm much more effective and resourceful in how I'm working with him. But there are other times that the um, power of the mood is so great that the little cognition of may this serve to awaken is like, (laughs) you know, the hell with it. There's, there's just too much discomfort to not act a- out anger. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I know you do, so that's why I'm telling you. <laughs> so we go back and forth. And 
my experience is that having the intention to respond wakefully is valuable because even though it doesn't always carry the day, we begin to lean more and more in that direction. More and more of our sense of who we are includes that recognition and isn't quite so caught in the ferocity of the moment. This is Kafka. You can hold back from the suffering of the world. You have free permission to do so and it is in accordance with your nature. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. Now consider this. We each have our stories. For me, uh, in this anger, holding back is to kind of play, play out the anger. And, the, and being with what's there meant, means to not do anything. That would be the most profound way to avoid suffering, to be with the anger but not act it out. And yet it's very difficult. We go in and out of remembering. Now, there are different ways that we hold back from experiencing what's there, the pain of what's in the moment. One way is, as I've been describing, acting out is one way that we resist pain in the moment. Another way is what's called pity. We can see somebody suffering, our our self-suffering, see underneath the anger, the fear, and the woundedness, and all that, and there can be a sense of, oh, well, I pity that person, or I pity that part of myself. And in pitying, there's a little more recognition of suffering, but there's still a distancing that slightly demeans the part of yourself that's having trouble, are the other person that's having trouble. So that's called the near enemy of compassion, where you're seeing the suffering, but your response is pity. There's still a, oh, that poor person over there, or that poor sick part of myself, but there's a holding off. The full-blown enemy of compassion is cruelty, is meanness, is aversion, is, comes in the flag for it is blaming. I'll tell you a story. A friend of mine has a younger brother who uh, was brain damaged at birth or whatever and has all his life had a lot of difficulty in working and establishing relationships. And he's become a very shame-based person because added on to his organic brain difficulties is all the shame of being a dysfunctional person. So my friend, who loves his brother very much, has two different reactions. One, when he's with his brother, he, even though he knows this is a person that was brain damaged, has this blaming disgust, like, try to get it together anyway, you don't have to act like that, and like, real aversion, pushing him away, distancing. When he's not near his brother, he feels pity. He's not that, it's not that full shadow of compassion, which is a full blaming, but there's just pity. And when I asked him, well, what would have to happen? What would you experience if you weren't pitying him or blaming him? My friend paused for a bit, and he really, it took him a while because this was so hard. You know, if he had to put down his blame, he had to put down the pity, what would be left? And he said, I'd have to feel the pain of his shame to not push him away with pity or with blame. I'd have to open to just how awful his experience is. This is the challenge of true compassion. The challenge of true compassion is to genuinely open to the fullness of what's there. Otherwise, and we do this a lot, we're controlling it and it comes out as a slight judgment or as pity. So it's useful to use the flag of blame to find out what's going on inside us. I mean, if you reflect right now, and you might want to see where in your life you're currently in this pattern of blaming somebody or blaming yourself for something. And just sense where that might be true, because we usually all have somewhere that we're blaming where you're either in the habit of blaming another person 
or blaming yourself for something. And what would you have to feel if you put down the blaming? What would be there? What would you have to accept or open to if you weren't pushing away with blame? Again, we'll continue this, but just to check in, let blame be a flag that can actually help to awaken your heart-mind if you look under with honesty. I know for myself, because I'm in this process of doing so much blaming of my son that when I stop and get underneath the story of blaming, what's there is a fear of my own deficiency. I'm trying to control him with my blame and my anger because I'm afraid of feeling like a bad mother, like a failure. And it's hard to sit with that. That's a very uncomfortable, intense affect. What are we running from when we are blaming? Pema Chodron describes what we're running from as the soft spot, the vulnerability, the place where our deepest fears live. And sadly, we organize ourselves, we armor ourselves to not feel those fears. We armor ourselves with blame and judgment so we don't have to feel that deep insecurity. And yet it's that place that soft spot, which is really the source of compassion if we let ourselves open deeply enough. The Buddha said, there is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of, the not experiencing of, that keeps you from freedom. And this is the not seeing of suffering, not experiencing that core of vulnerability. As long as we're protecting ourselves from it, we have no access to true freedom. Why? Because it's still there. We're still haunted by it. It's not like we're ever really secure by armoring ourselves and blaming and staying busy and trying to compensate. The fear's still there. When Jack Cornfield first went to Asia, he made a formal request to enter a monastery with Ajahn Chah. And the first thing that Ajahn Chah said to him when he made the request was, are you willing to suffer? And I think that's interesting because there's not, it's not like there's something morose about the Buddhist path. I mean, the way I'm describing it right now, it doesn't make it sound like a crowd pleaser. It's not like, oh, let's go have fun and suffer. But there's an acknowledgement that unless we're with what's real, there's never freedom and there's never true happiness. And part of what's real is the truth of suffering. The whole of what's real is that life is intense and we have this cringe response. It seems too mysterious and big and intense and we're busy trying to control it. So a huge part of practice is to kind of relax the grip, just let this life happen. And the beauty is we discover that when we do, our hearts naturally open up. We can love fully. We can live fully. But it takes a lot of practice because our conditioning to push away, to defend, to blame, to judge is pretty deeply wired. So we push away parts of ourselves and we push away parts of each other and the practice for re-embracing is to begin to pay attention. It's very hard to push away somebody or some aspect of your being when you really pay attention, when you really look closely. I'll tell you another story where that became so clear to me. When I was in my 20s, I was quite active as in political leftist kind of work, and part of it was tenants' rights organizing. 
So what we would do is um, we would be building, we'd build these unions and groups of families would get together and that would be the way to try to challenge the landlords on issues of rent control and upkeep and so on. And time after time, there would be a fam- somebody would take on the leadership role in terms of organizing these campaigns, and the landlord would figure out who the leader was and then offer that particular family perks, you know, like lower your rent and special privileges and so on, and basically would co-op them. And then the rest of us would be all righteous and moralistic and, and then consider that person as the enemy because that family had gone over to the other side. And this happened a number of times, but once I was very involved in one particular campaign and I got to know the family that was taking on quite a leadership role very closely. And I would go to their house and have dinner and play with their kids and talk to um, this woman, the man's wife, who was really taking a lot of responsibility, who had cancer and was facing an operation, and her brother who was in jail. And so I really got to know um, from the inside what was going on. And then, as you can imagine, they too were bought off. And it was impossible for me to write them off. I couldn't call them the enemy because I knew them. They had a face and you know, I knew their hearts and, and they were just people who were in need and had a better offer at that particular time. When we don't look closely, this world has a lot of dividing lines. Do you know what I mean? It seems like there's that person from that country who has a different political need and therefore is in conflict with... There's a lot of lines and a lot of adversarial kind of relationships. They begin to dissolve when we really pay attention. It's a challenge to be vulnerable. We are so wired not to be that it takes constant re-remembering. There are only certain occasions in our life where it just absolutely how it is and we're just stuck with it. That happens when somebody dies. We're all very, very vulnerable. And you know how it is, many of you, families that have had very little intimacy, there is a, a depth of tenderness and connecting around the shared loss of somebody that they value. Another time of kind of imposed vulnerability is for women during pregnancy. I'm sure many of you um, have gone through this. I know for myself when I was pregnant, it was amazing that every time I'd watch the news, my whole system was, um, was so horrified at suffering because I couldn't make it out there. It was not like it was some distant abstract being. Anytime I'd see a picture of a starving person, there was a real sense of, this is real, and and it hurt in my body. Because that's one of the biological conditions of pregnancy, that kind of sensitivity. I don't have it now. I can read the paper and dissociate more. Uh, Luckily, not fully, you know. Some weeks ago, a Washington journalist, Donna Britt, wrote a... um, really good article. And she described how she was on her way somewhere and a bus went by with a poster and the poster had pictures of children in some place of urban warfare behind this fence and they were starving and grimy and looking desperate, out through desperate eyes. And the lines underneath were, we are your children. And how in a sudden rush, and it was very bodily, she realized the truth of it. It was, it was not like she could make it abstract. They were her children too. And, and it was kind of like a veil was lifted. She walked through her world and was able to look at people and she said it didn't keep going. She closed down again, and we do. But she had a glimpse of what it was like to look at each being and assume the connectedness. Here we are together on this earth, all experiencing this kind of vulnerability that's so real that we share that. We have to start with 
compassion towards the life of our own body and mind because there's no such thing as having this tenderness towards the world if we're harsh towards ourselves. So in that spirit, I'd like to do the next reflection with you, if you will, just to um, come sitting up with your eyes closed. This can be a continuation if you'd like to choose what you chose earlier, if that works for you. But to reflect on an area where you're blaming yourself, where there's some pattern of self-judgment, of feeling deficient or inadequate about something in your life. So for now, let the story of what's wrong with you be there. Just see if you can connect. For most of us, we have some very deeply grooved patterns of judging, blaming ourselves, feeling a core level of deficiency often. It could be around how we hurt other people or how we're out of control in our life or not successful in areas that matter. Addictive behaviors. Sense where you're blaming yourself, where it's very hard to forgive. And sense how long you've been carrying this blame against yourself. Or if it's not this blame, a similar kind of blame. How long have you been carrying this around, this feeling of something's wrong with me? And how much energy has been generated against yourself. How much have you turned on yourself? Sense how it feels to be the subject of blame. What does self-blame feel like? See if you can feel in your body what that's like. What would you have to open to if you weren't blaming yourself? What would that be like? Sense right now what it hap- what happens when you intend to see the suffering of blame. So there's no um, wrong answer to this, but what happens when you look at the experience of self-blame? What happens? What do you notice? Again, this is, I'd like to open and hear from anyone that's willing, and just to again say, you can't answer this wrong. Just, what do you notice? Anyone, yeah. So one thing that happens when we look at where we're blaming ourselves is there's a total dissociation or disconnection because it's too painful and we just can't deal with it. Thank you, Monica. Yeah. Others. Yeah. Say it again. Pain. So just looking into the face of self-blame connects you with pain. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Tired and discouraged. Right. Yeah. 
So you connected with the fear behind what you're blaming yourself for. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So when asked what would you have to deal with if you put aside the blame, you'd be plunged into the core feeling of inadequacy, which is true, yeah. Yeah. These are, yeah, please. So the blame dissipates some and what's left is some confusion and inadequacy. Okay. The reason I emphasize twice that there's not a right answer, a wrong answer, (laughs) there's no right answer either, is because what we're finding out is our styles of not being with or being with pain. The deepest pain that I know about is the pain of shame, of that core sense of deficiency that several people alluded to, and the fear around that. I don't, disc- I don't think of them as separate. The feeling of deficiency and the fear around deficiency. And we will do what it takes to not be plunged into that. And for most of us, what it takes is to keep on a steady artillery of blame, because as long as we're blaming, we don't have to sink into the core experience of something's wrong with me, the direct experience of it. It protects us a bit. So when we're asked to look at blaming behaviors, there's a bunch of different things that come up. For some people, what comes up is, well, I'm bad and I deserve it, so I should keep on blaming. For me, what comes up when I think of dropping blame is I'm afraid to because if I stop blaming myself, I'll never fix myself and I'll still always do it wrong. Something, you know, that kind of circular thing. Some of us absolutely dissociate and disconnect because the pain is so great, it's been so traumatic that it's just too much to, to sit down in. Or we sit down in a little and feel pain or feel fear. It's a difficult but important starting place, just what you're doing here, to be willing to look at where the suffering lives. And for most of us, it lives in the place where we're blaming ourselves. We might be angry people, and most of the time we're aware of blaming others, but that comes out of a feeling of insufficiency. Deep down under that is a feeling of insecurity and self-blame, too. So any path of freedom, any awakening of the heart starts with this quality of being with and gradually forgiving what we're holding against ourselves. And it's gradual because it's intense and it's big and we can't do it all at once. I think one of the questions that's most important is, well, what do we do if it feels like too much? You know, I try to forgive myself or I try to face that deep place of insufficiency, but it's so overwhelming, I think I'm going to drown in it, you know. It's an important question because for some of us, or for most of us, at least some of the time it does feel like too much. So first, to be quite forgiving about that that we do it gradually, really slowly, kindly. But I'd like to mention a few different, when you hit the wall, like you're trying to open to something big, some pain or intensity inside your own being, or some suffering in the world that you want to open your heart to, like those children on that poster on that bus, and yet it just feels too crushing. What do you do? One thing is that we have to take a break. We need a certain amount of resilience, and sometimes this intention to open our hearts and minds and beings, we need to just take a break to shift our attention, to take a nap, to take a walk. The Buddha did it. Here, this is a story from the life of the Buddha. And I'm behind. Oh, well. (laughs) Okay. Hmm. 
There was a time when in one of his forest monasteries there was fighting that broke up over broke out over the violation of some rules that had been established for monks and nuns and the Buddha went to that monastery to speak with them and was really encouraging them to own their peace and apologize and um, back then monks were a lot like humans are now and they just wouldn't apologize and own their peace so (laughs) what happened was he kept trying different ways to establish some sort of peaceful communication and nothing worked so finally he threw up his hands and he decided to um, leave them to their own consequences and he spent the whole season, this was the rainy seasons, um, out way deep into the forest and he would, all he would do is live with the animals. He just wanted to commune with animals, take a break from these, you know, uncooperative monks. <laughs> and he took the whole rainy season to do it and then he returned and he was in a different space and they were in, and I don't know the rest of the story. <laughs> but the Buddha took a break and we need to too sometimes another thing we sometimes need to do is set up wise boundaries particularly if we're trying to open our hearts to somebody in our life and feeling in some way taken advantage of or stepped on how to keep our hearts open but establish wise boundaries is one of the great skillful means that we all need to learn and it helps to bounce it around with other people but one of the Uh, shadows of compassion that's not really compassion has been called idiot compassion by the um, Asians and in the West we know it as codependency and we have other words enabling but I'm sure you get the feeling for it and this is where we don't have the kind of boundaries that help ourselves or anyone where we try to just give of ourselves and give of ourselves in a way that doesn't take care of in an ecological way what we or another being really needs. So setting boundaries is the second kind of when when it feels like too much. The third, and I think this is the one that we all most need to look in our hearts about, is doing what it takes to belong, to feel a sense of belonging to each other, to community, our families. Um, It's very easy to get caught up in our busyness and our preoccupations and our plans of where we're going and what we're doing and forget that our deepest awakening happens in relationship and that that takes nourishing and it takes courage because we're scared of each other. And yet we can't open our hearts and love fully if we don't take the risk of being with each other, belonging to each other being vulnerable. So we include in our practice these ways of getting together in small groups and deepening our friendships, the Kalyana Metta groups, the holotropic breath work where we're with each other in this very vibrant way and uncovering and unfolding of emotions, in therapy, in all our friendships, making that effort to find where the connection really lives and being true to that. That makes it safe enough to open. You know, it's very hard to sometimes hold all that's going on in our inner being and we need each other to help create a space. So taking a break, setting up boundaries, and deepening contact are three different things that when we've, it feels like too much, help to replenish us, help to stabilize us and open us so there's room for the intensity of this life. There's a question that comes up about compassion when we talk about opening to it all and and having and caring about other people's suffering that isn't this attachment to getting rid of suffering? I'd like to end by distinguishing between the attachment to get rid of suffering and this kind of openness that's willing to be with and make room for what's there. The common ground of compassion, this expression of care about suffering, is that we're not trying to fix anything. We're not trying to get rid of anything. We're not trying to control anything. When you see another being in your life and see their vulnerability, there's a natural care 
a response of the heart. There's natural compassion. And this does not take the shape of having to try to fix anything. Compassion is a a state of awareness that's open and allowing and incredibly present. And the healing comes from that. The healing doesn't mean that the pain's gone. The healing is an opening so that there's room for what's there, an opening from a small self that's victimized by pain to a very boundless sense of being that has room for it all. When we heal, the pain can still be there, but we become more whole. There's room. So this is the liberating quality of compassion, of this presence with the pain that's within us and in each other, is this quality of presence that makes room for what's there. And it takes the shape sometimes of of a prayer, and sometimes it actually has the effect of relieving physical suffering. Some of you might know of Larry Dossey. He's done a lot of different um, experiments about the power of prayer. And in one of them, he took 400 patients that were hospitalized after heart attacks. And half of them were receiving prayers from the outside. People were directing prayers to them. And there was statistically significant evidence that those, that group, that half, improved more than the other. And it was a very imperfect study. It wasn't designed perfectly, but since then they've done 150, 200 more studies, and there's more and more evidence that we don't stop at the edge of our bodies, and that the power of our aspiration really does affect each other. That when you feel another being's vulnerability, and you let yourself care, and wish for them the best, and open your heart to include, that openness has an effect. It has an effect. This is Rio Khan. Rio Khan is a monk that was known for really living his life and actively participating, and out of that dancing with life, really uh, having a deep compassion. Once again, the children and I are fighting a battle using spring grasses, now advancing, now retreating, each time with more refinement. Twilight, everyone has returned home. The bright, round moon helps me to endure the loneliness. The autumn nights have lengthened, and the cold has begun to penetrate my mattress. My sixtieth year is near, yet There is no one to take pity on this weak old body. The rain has finally stopped. Now, just a thin stream trickles from the roof. All night, the incessant cry of insects. Wide awake, unable to sleep. Leaning on my pillow, I watch the pure bright rays of sunrise. Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. So it's this quality, our willingness to be with the pain and be with the joy and really live it fully that allows us to have this openness of heart, that allows us to relate to all the different beings we see and really see truly they too, in the same way as we do, have the insecurities and the hopes and the dreams and the fears. As George Washington Carver says, as far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and strong, because someday in life you will have been all of these. So we practice to find our way home again, to begin to recognize the ways we avoid what's difficult. Just mindfully, without judgment, notice it. Oh, I numb out. Oh, I get scared. Oh, I get preoccupied. And to bring a little more presence 
one of the greatest tools in awakening these hearts is what I call the sacred pause. That when we're in the reactive chain reaction of being in our day, we stop. Because it's only when we pause and we stop that we can allow ourselves to touch into that place of vulnerability that's real and that is a source of compassion. To stop again and again. For me, when I'm arguing with my son, to be able to stop and just feel in my body so I can come from a little more of a tender place. For another person, when they're berating themselves or blaming themselves, just to stop and feel a bit of the pain and fear that's under that blame. To stop and see another being and sense what is happening for this being. And in that stopping, there's a preciousness that we touch into of being with what's real and a capacity to respond. Rumi writes, the cure for pain is in the pain. Good and bad are mixed. If you don't have both, you don't belong with us. We all have it, that mixture. Our practice is to begin with this body and mind and to begin to open and look honestly, caringly at the beings around us. When we do, we begin to naturally expand the circle of compassion. But it's bit by bit. Mother Teresa describes it drop by drop. She doesn't try to save the world, she says, but rather just this being right in front of her to see them truly, to see the goodness, to see the suffering. Mary Gwenther writes, our horizons should broaden from the narrow circle of those known to us to include all those in need or suffering, whole nations as well as individuals. When I quiet my words and let myself simply be open, I find myself praying for the people who are dying right now, the babies born with parents who have AIDS. Right now they're being born. The frail old woman lying sleepless in a nursing home all alone right now. The prisoners who are being tortured right now. So there's this quality of it's right here, this body, this mind, this being I'm with, And can our practice be to open in a genuine, courageous, and immediate way? So we close by, again, practicing with what's real for us in our own being. If you will, to come sitting up. And establishing a sense of presence, this moment, these sensations in your body, sensing what mood is here, sensing if there's any discomfort, pleasantness, unpleasantness, breathing in and feeling what's true so that as you breathe in, there's a willingness to feel. Breathing out and offering space to whatever's going on inside you, offering care. Letting the breath be a way of contacting what's real with the in-breath. These feelings, these sensations, Breathing out and offering a care and space. There's room for whatever is arising. There's room. Bringing to mind the circumstances where you found self-blame and revisiting this again with the intention of holding with care and kindness as much as possible.
sensing where there's self-blame, the story around it, and breathing in and just feeling what's there around all of it. Breathing in and opening to receive. Breathing out and offering care, kindness, to the place in you that's hurting. Breathing in and letting yourself feel what's true. The experience of self-blame, the pain or fear around it. Breathing out. And with the out-breath, and with deep sincerity, offering care to the place of woundedness, of hurt. This is the practice of compassion, just the intention to breathe in and touch what's real, to breathe out and offer care. If as you breathe in, there's confusion or numbness, then breathe in confusion or numbness. Breathe out, offering care to that. There's nothing that's excluded from the heart. We just open to receive this life as it is. and offer our prayer, our care. I see this suffering, I feel this suffering, I care about this suffering. And then opening your attention to sense that you're sitting with a number of beings that all suffer with the same feelings of self-blame, the fear and the pain of it. So that as you breathe in, you breathe in for all of us. And as you breathe out, you offer the prayer of compassion for all of us. I care about the suffering. May this serve to awaken our hearts. Breathing in for all of us. Breathing out your care. Opening the awareness to sense now all beings everywhere. The struggle of all beings to accept themselves, to be at peace within themselves. And breathing in now for all beings, we breathe in that struggle and pain to let it touch our hearts and breathe out the prayer and the care that all hearts may awaken that all may be free. We close our meditation chanting the sound current of ah. This is again a syllable from the heart of connectedness bringing the palms together, and then you'll inhale and exhale and just chant it, and when you're done exhaling, begin again with the mantra.
May all beings benefit. <laughs>